Do I get a, a worship packet too? <laughs> well, <laughs> there's a whole bunch back there. I want to thank uh, Mary and Kurt for inviting me to come and preach today in this uh, wonderful church, and it's just a joy. I, I, I know Kurt, your, uh, your associate pastor, very well. We, did, we were together for a whole year in ministry together, and uh, I'm, I'm sold on this, on this guy. I recruited him for Princeton, and, I, and Princeton sold on him too. We, we just, uh, and I, had, I was there at your ordination at UPC when, we, when you were ordained as a Presbyterian pastor. I'm just very proud to be here today. I have a wonderful text. Let me tell you a little about this text, though, to get you ready for it. Uh, as you know, Antioch, the city of Antioch, was a missionary-sending church, and one of the missionaries they sent was the Apostle Paul. And also his friends, and the, they sent them all over, all over the Mediterranean world. This one church just took that on their, their shoulders to send Paul out. And so Barnabas and Paul uh, were on one missionary trip when they went to a, a city called Lystra. That is what would be in, in the province of Galatia at that time. In the first, so that a letter in the New Testament is actually written to that church, only that's the letter to the Galatians, because that was Lystra. It was a city in, uh, in, in what is modern-day Turkey. And a strange thing happened when they went to Lystra. Paul was uh, teaching there. He loved to teach. That's what Paul did when he went around the Mediterranean world. He taught, and he was teaching there, and had believers had, had grown up in that church. And then a man who was lame uh, con- was confronted. The people brought that man to Paul, and Paul saw that he had faith and told him to stand up. And he stood up, and he, was, and he was healed. And then a strange thing happened. The people began to, in their own language, the Laconian language, and Paul didn't understand the language, they started to praise Paul and Barnabas, and they said, in fact, the, the priest of the temple of Zeus was a part of them, and they came to the edge of the city, and they said, the gods are with us because of that healing. And they called Barnabas Zeus. Barnabas must have been very tall. And Zeus would be, of course, the top god in the pantheon of Greek gods. And, and uh, uh, Paul, they called Hermes. Hermes is a, a Greek god who explains things. That's why we, have, we build all scientific language from the Greek. We talk about hermeneutics is this, the science of explaining things. So he was the one who explained things. The Romans borrowed all their gods from the Greeks. The Romans called him, they called Zeus Jupiter, and the Romans called Hermes Mercury because he was always going around and teaching and explaining. So they said, the gods are here. We have Zeus, oh, and we have Hermes. And, and Paul and, and Barnabas were probably should be thrilled to see all these people, what, what in a... What a great success we're having. All these people are rushing to the edge of the city. The only thing is they're talking in the Laconian language, and they don't understand what they're saying. And then finally it dawns on them they want to worship them because the temple of Zeus priest is bringing an offering to put before Barnabas, Zeus, and Hermes. Whereupon they rushed into the crowd... And they were Jews, so they tore their clothes. That's sort of a strange Jewish thing to do when you're angry. But I'm sure the Laconians didn't understand that. Why are they tearing their clothes? They tore their clothes. They went into the crowd, and they said, Stop. We're just ordinary men like you are. We're not gods. Now, that's good news. That's really good news. We're not gods. 
we're just ordinary people like you, so don't worship us. But instead of that cheering up the people, it turned them into rage. Sort of like when a rock star disappoints a crowd, sometimes the crowd will turn into rage because the rock star is not doing what I wanted them to do. He's not being worshipful for me, or I'm to worship him. So they started to stone Paul. They didn't stone Zeus. They didn't stone Barnabas. They were stoning Paul. And then a strange thing happened. A group of the Christians surrounded Paul and pulled him out of the city and saved his life. Folks, do you realize that if they hadn't done that, we wouldn't have had any of the letters in the New Testament? (laughs) Because all the letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament were after this. But they pulled him out and rescued him. And then, so Paul and Barnabas went down to Derby to rest up for one day. Then they came back to Lystra a couple days later and had great success with the people. And, and instead of being scared away, they came back and they preached the good news of Christ and many people there became Christians. And as a matter of fact, they become a part of the Galatian church, Lystra. Now, move forward. In chapter, that's chapter 14 of Acts. Chapter 16 of Acts, Paul comes back to Lystra again. This time, not with Barnabas, but with uh, Silvanus and Luke, who are his companions at that time. And they come, and Paul meets up with a young man. His name is Timothy. And everybody in the town speaks highly of Timothy, as these Christians, of what a great young man he is. He probably is only around 16 or 17 years old. And Paul says, would you like to go with me and be with me on my journeys as my study assistant? (laughs) And so Timothy went with Paul from that point on. And we know more about Timothy than any other disciple in the New Testament letters because he was with Paul from then on to the very end. And I have wondered if Timothy was one of those young men who risked their lives like a first century... You know that in the the Secret Service, when the president is under threat, they always fall on the president and make a star over the president to take the bullet that's supposed to go for the president. And these Christians took the bullet. They surrounded Paul, took the rocks, and pulled him out. And I wonder if one of those young Christians who did that was a young man named Timothy. I think, I'm just wondering. And I have a couple of clues. When I wrote a commentary on 2 Timothy, I have a few clues that I think can support my my wonder. But anyway, Paul, in chapter 16, Timothy goes with him from then on. He's the great companion of Paul in all the letters. And isn't this interesting? The very last letter that Paul writes before he dies, when he's in prison in Rome, in this fatal imprisonment, the last letter is to that young man, Timothy. And I'm going to read for you the first 12 verses of Timothy as a, a wonderful text on encouragement because that young man is now assigned by Paul to be a leader in the church at Ephesus. And he gets this letter in Ephesus. Paul's in Rome, imprisoned. And in the letter, Paul's going to urge him to come and visit him again, come back to Rome and see him. And that's the letter where he says, do your best to come before winter. And when you go through Troas, be sure you pick up my coat. I left it there. And the manuscripts I left. I want it. Paul wants to keep studying. And bring them and come up to Rome and, and see me again. And that's the Second Timothy letter. But this is how it starts. Let's pray first. 
Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight. Lord, open this wonderful text to us. It's a text of encouragement. Help us to see how it is for us too. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. He starts out, Paul, an apostle, that means someone who's sent, of Christ Jesus by the will of God for or in behalf of the promise, because of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. I'm reading from the new RSV, which is what you have in your Purex, and I think that's what they're putting up on the board. Good. The new RSV. The letter is to Timothy, my beloved child. Now, you have to, I have to make this clear. Timothy's father was a Greek. His mother was Jewish. But his father had probably died because Paul is not able to call him my child, which he does r- routinely, uh, if his father were still alive or there. So this means that Timothy was raised by his mother, and you'll see in a minute, and his, and his grandmother. They raised him. And he doesn't have a father. And Paul adopts him, in a sense. Or informally does. And so that's why he can call him. And he does throughout. He says, like a son. Uh, and that's why he calls him child. My, by the way, the word isn't little child there. It's youth. My youth. Then he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul starts every letter that way. Then he starts out with gratitude. I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did, when I remember you. The first part of Paul's encouragement to this young man is that he's going to do a lot of remembering. Have you ever thought about how the word remember is very big in the Old Testament? In the Psalms, you will remember the faithfulness and the goodness of God. And the Jews are to remember. In the the Ten Commandments, that is the fourth commandment, you shall remember that God brought you with an outstretched hand out of the land of Egypt and you were once a slave, but he set you free. You shall remember. And so now Paul is using this word. He's going to use it three times. Watch him. I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. See, he's at Ephesus. Paul's up in Rome. Recalling your tears, and I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Is he there referring a little bit to the fact that you have cared a lot about me? In fact, you risk your neck. When I was being stoned at Lystra, uh, you risked your neck for me, and so I remember your tears. So, and that I want to be filled with joy when I see you. Then again, the word remember is used again. I am reminded, I remember, your sincere faith and the faith that lived first in your grandmother. Now he's going to tell him about his heritage. He's going to remember the root system the family that this young man comes from. And I love this. By the way, this is a great text on the fact that a single mom can raise a great son. This is the great single parent text. But the grandmother is there too. So she needs a grandmother to help out. And so watch him pay tribute to this wonderful mother and grandmother who raised this boy. And they did a pretty darn good job raising this young man. So he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, but a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And Paul knows both of those women. Probably when he was in Lystra and taught there, those women became his friends. For this reason, I remind you. Now, I want you to remember. See, he's been remembering. And now, you third time using the word, almost like in the Old Testament psalm. 
And so I remind you now to rekindle the gift of God that's in you. It's interesting. He doesn't say, I want you to find a gift. I want you to create a gift. I want you to rekindle a gift that's already there. I like that. You know, people, everybody's mid-story. Everybody has a lot of story that's already happened in their life. And Paul starts out by not saying, I want you to find some things. I want you to discover some things for yourself. I want you instead, he says, I want you to rekindle some gifts that I know are already there, but they may have been smoldering a little bit. They may need to be stirred up. And so he uses the word rekindle. Kindle, stir them up. All right, here they are. He's got four things at the beginning of this letter, four great gifts that God gave you, and I want you to stir them up. I don't want you to, he's not just saying that you don't have them. You have them, but maybe they're dormant. Now, stir them up. And here they are. The first one is negative. You can, you can say positive things in a negative way, too. And he starts out by saying, and I'll, let me start out by saying what God didn't give you, and then what he did give you. So first, what he didn't give you, and then what he did give you. So watch it. This is a great text. So, I'm so grateful for Eunice, I'm grateful for Lois, I'm grateful for the people who've invested their life in you, and now, I, this reason, I urge you to rekindle the gift of God that's within you, and many hands have been laid on you, sort of the cloud of witnesses in that church, and it's interesting, isn't it? They laid hands on him to protect him from stoning, and others have laid hands on you. So he uses that wonderful image of the body of Christ, just like Mary did when she was doing the assurance this morning, that you need your brothers and sisters to assure you that you're forgiven and that, that God's grace is there. People have put their hands on you, and so Paul mentions that. I know it. Many hands have been put on you about this gift, and here are four gifts that God has given you. First, he did not give you the spirit of... Now, the new RSV says cowardice. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have... I wrote a commentary on this, and I read every single word in the Greek, and, I, and some translators have it well. The King James Bible says God did not give you a spirit of fear. That's a little better. But cowardice is the wrong word. Uh, I'll tell you what the word is. It's a Greek word here, delirious. It's deliria. That's the Greek word. It's only used twice in the New Testament. So it's a rare word, deliria. And what is deliria? It's used in Mark with the disciples when they were put out to sea. Jesus said to go out in the boat, and they were, uh, Jesus was in the boat with them, and a storm began to uh, rage, and Jesus was asleep in the boat. Some sailor, huh? He's asleep in the back of the boat, and his disciples are trying to run the boat, and a huge storm hits Galilee. By the way, Galilee has many storms because it's, uh, you see, it's 300 feet below sea level. And so when the wind comes up over the hills, Mount Hermon, it comes down in Galilee. Do you know there are more boats in the bottom of the Lake of Galilee than any other body of water in the world of similar size? Because so many storms in the Sea of Galilee. It's very, very uh, rough water. And so they're in a terrible storm. Rembrandt wrote one of, did one of his best paintings is called Sea of Galilee. The ship under threat. Jesus asleep. The sailors are doing their best with the ropes. And then here's what they do. They come up to Jesus and say, Carest thou not that we perish? You're asleep. We're in a storm. 
Folks, that's not cowardice. They're not cowards. They're doing their best to, to, to secure the ship. And they're coming to Jesus and scolding him. Don't you care that we're perishing? And then Jesus wakes up. And then he says this. Don't be deliria. You know what deliria means in Greek? Disorienting fear. It's not cowardice. It's disorienting fear. It's the fear that means you don't know what way to turn. You're not, a, you're not scared in, as a coward. You're scared of not knowing what move to make. What do we do? Do we secure that rope? Do we secure that rope? Do we start bailing? What do we do? They're not cowards. Those guys are brave. Certainly, Timothy is not a coward. But disorienting fear, and that's the first word he uses, deliria. Don't be deliria. And then Jesus calmed the sea. He calmed it. But notice Paul now says, God did not give you the spirit of disorienting fear. And I think, folks, that's a great gift to claim. When you're facing uh, stresses in your life, you can claim this gift. He did not give us the spirit of disorienting fear. So circle, if you have your own text, you can circle cowardice and say that's the wrong word and put uh, disorienting fear. But rather, a spirit or wind of strength, power, dunamis, it should be probably translated as strength rather than power. Strength and love, that's the word agape, that's the love that comes from God. And self-discipline is the Greek word sophrono, which means healthy mind. In fact, the King James Bible has the best translation there, a sound mind. That's a little better than self-control. A sound mind, a healthy mind. God doesn't want you to be a fanatic. Uh, he doesn't want Lord Ronald, who leaped on his horse and rode madly off in all directions. He wants you to be clear-headed. And he gives you a clear head, Paul says, and that's what God has given you, Timothy. He starts out by noticing, remembering his root system and thanking God for the good people in his life. That's very important. And then thanking God for the good gifts in his life. And these four gifts, one, not deliria, two, strength. Three, love, the love that comes from Christ. And four, a healthy mind, a healthy head. Now, that's the way it starts. Then he goes on as a coach. And he says, therefore, do not be ashamed then of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Paul is in prison. And so he starts out by saying, don't worry about me. And don't be ashamed about my being in prison. But join with me in... Now, I have to do another word correction. The RSV here says suffering, but this is not the Greek word for suffering. Later it is, in this very text, the word suffering is used, which is uh, paxis. But this is the word hardship. And I wish it had been translated hardship. He's not talking about suffering now. He's talking about hardship. He's talking about a coach sending you into a game, like rugby, where he could, might, the coach might say, I'm sending you in the game and you're going to get all scuffed up. That's hardship. A ga there are games that have hardship, like losing 10 to 1 is hardship. Uh, I'm, I'm going to send you into a game of hardship. And that will test you. Okay? That's the word he uses. It's not suffering. It, Paul is not telling, I want you to suffer a lot. No, no. Tr try to avoid suffering if you can. 
Hardship don't avoid. So he says, uh, join with me in the hardship of the, for the gospel, relying on the strength of, of God. Who, and now, this is beautiful. Who saved us, made us safe, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and his love, his grace. Think of it. That's why you're in the game. You're in the game. You're in this, in this uh, rugby match, in this football game, in this baseball game. You're in this race because God loves you, and he gives you strength, and not disorienting fear, but strength and love and a healthy head, and now get into the game. And that's what Paul is urging him to do. That's what we need to do. C.S. Lewis is a great line. Uh, when Jill is crying after she has a huge shock in her life and because her friend Diggory falls off a cliff in, in the silver chair. And then uh, she's uh, lying there crying, and Lewis puts this line in. Crying is all right in a way as long as it lasts, but sooner or later you have to stop, and then you have to decide what to do. <laughs> That's a great line from C.S. Lewis. He's not saying you shouldn't cry. Crying is all right in a way as long as it lasts. But sooner or later you have to stop and decide what to do. You could put some other words in there too, like having fun is all right in a way as long as it lasts. But sooner or later you have to stop and decide what to do. Okay? Going to school is all right in a way as long as it lasts. (laughs) But sooner or later you have to stop. And then decide what to do. See, Lewis has a great line there. And that's what Paul is saying. Because Christ has loved you, and now he's, because of his grace, he's given you, uh, he's made you safe. Uh, so this purpose and grace that he has for your life, that's why you want to get into the game. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus. Now Paul gives a big historical remembering. First, we remembered the people in his life. Now he remembers even way before the people in his life. Pascal in the Ponsais has a great line, God loved you before you were born. Do you believe that? He loved you before you were born. You have worth before you were born. He loved you. And so now, Paul is saying almost the same thing, that he has, uh, this grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began but is now revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The word abolished is a fascinating Greek word. It's a play on words. It's the word erg, which means energy or unit of energy, uh, which is the word that means work, and he puts a negative in front of it. Kata, erg. And so the translation of it is, he has made death non-working. See, not working. Death is not working now. It has been decisively defeated. It is not the last word. We thought death was the last word. It's not. It has been made non-working. And that's the word the RSV decided to translate that, abolish. He's abolished death. He's made it not working and has brought life and immortality to light 
through the good news. And for this good news, I was appointed a herald or announcer uh, and an apostle and a teacher. And for this reason, I do suffer. And now he uses the word praxis, suffer. I do suffer. After all, he's in prison and he's been, three times he was almost thrown to the lions. And probably he will be finally killed in that imprisonment. But he said, I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed. He, now, now we're back to the same word he started with. Don't be ashamed, T- Timothy. Get into this game. Get into the hardship. Get into the game. And he says, I'm not ashamed. For, and now, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, and I love it for you who are youth that are here today, because it's a great verse for youth, as it is for older people too. He says, I, I'm not ashamed, for I know who I have believed, who I've put my trust in, and I am convinced, that's the word sure, he doesn't say I have all the evidence, I'm not absolute on this, I have enough evidence I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him. By the way, the word for guard there is an interesting Greek word that's used in Luke, the second chapter. I love that word. It's thulaso. And that word in second chapter of Luke is the word used for the shepherds, keeping watch over their flock by night, guarding their flock by night. The RSV translates it, or the King James Bible translates it, keeping watch over their flock by night. George Gershwin and Ira Gershwin wrote a great, great song, Someone to Watch Over Me. And uh, I don't know what they meant by that song, but St. Paul uses that same idea. There's someone watching over you. There's someone that watches over you, guards you. So I'll read that again. I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, trusted, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. I've entrusted to him. He's able to guard or keep, watch over what I've entrusted to him and what he has entrusted to me. Uh, I have a little parable for you. Supposing you were climbing, uh, doing a solo climb in a mountain. You should not do this, by the way. This is a parable, is a, a, a parable that you should not do. Uh, I don't believe in, in solo climbers in, in Yosemite right now. I think it's not good. I think it should be illegal to have a guy climbing the, the, the El Capitan all by himself. That's, there's too much death, watch in, uh, death wish in that. It's not a good thing. But there are a lot of people doing it now. Supposing you were doing it. You were climbing, climbing uh, solo, going up, and you got your pitons and you're putting in your carabiner and, and marking yourself and going up slow by slow by slow by slow and finally you get to the top and you're just about to the top and you did it so uh, you prove that you can do it and you threw your gear over the top of the thing of the cliff and you're just about ready to get up and spring up onto the cliff and you begin to slip this is a white knuckle parable you begin to slip but fortunately there's a root coming out of the rock and they do that, you know. There'll be roots from trees that are up there, and the, the root is exposed, and you grab the root. <sighs> so uh, this is a scary parable, I realize. I'm holding onto the root, 
Now, you know you can't hold on forever to that root, even if you have very strong hands. They're, they're, you might go to sleep, and if you go to sleep, they'll loosen, then you'll fall down. So you're holding on to the root. You know where you are right now. You know you can't last forever right there, so you're in a tough spot because all your gear has been thrown up and you don't have any equipment now with you, and you're, you've slipped, but you've got this, you've got this root. So, of course, you, you shout, help, and things like that. And then now I'll thicken the plot. Somebody comes to the edge of the cliff and looks over and sees you in their plight and says, oh, my goodness, this is really bad. And he puts his hands on you. See, you've got the root. So he can't take your hand because you'd have to let go of the root to take his hand. So he puts his hand here over your wrist. And then he says, okay, now, carefully, slowly, let go, and then I'll pull you up and then give you the next stage and you'll get over the edge. Okay. Uh, now let's examine your position philosophically for just a moment. You know where you are right now. You know you can't last too long where you are right now. But now it's complicated. This person says, let go. I'll pull you up. See, that's what Paul is saying here. There's one who can do it. And what will determine whether or not you let go of that root that you have now, that you're holding on to give meaning to your life right now? <laughs> Maybe you're... You, you know, you could have all kinds of parts of this parable. The things that you're holding on that give you meaning to your life. And he says, let go. I'll pull you up. Uh, I'll put you into safety. What will determine? There's two things that you have to decide before you let go. One, and they're both in this text. One is whether the one who asks, says, uh, let go, is good and is in favor of you or is he against you. In other words, you have to determine his goodwill. And the other is his strength. Okay, let's work with both. Take the goodwill first. Uh, when the Matterhorn was being climbed by the uh, Italians and the Swiss, they had a competition. Did you know there was a competition way back in the 30s, or 20s actually, uh, to climb the Matterhorn? And the, it, the, the story was that the Italian group was rolling rocks down on the Swiss group. They were behind them. And uh, now the, the Italians denied that. They just said rocks just broke loose. But the uh, Swiss were saying the Italians were rolling rocks on us. Now, supposing you were in the Swiss group and you got up there and this uh, wonderful man with rich Italian voice looks over the edge and says, let go, I'll pull you up. Are you going to let go? I mean, they've been rolling rocks down on me. And there's a competition to get to the summit of the Matterhorn. Are we going to let go? No, you're not, because you don't trust him. You don't trust his goodwill, see. I have to trust his goodwill. Okay, well, now let's, let's take the other side. Supposing uh, the person that comes, there's a scout troop up there having a, an outing, and one of the, unfortunately, one of the lightest weight of all the boys comes, and he sees you and reaches over and with his small hand, puts it around your wrist, and he's got so much goodwill, you can't believe it, he's a scout. And he says, uh, let go, mister, and I'll help you up. And, uh, and you're about 180 pounds, and you know physics, and you know that if I let go of, the, of this root, and this boy scout will be with me, and we'll go down together. <laughs> and there's enough morality that I don't want to do that. So... Again, notice there's two issues. One, is he good? Two, is he strong? Is he strong enough? Is he good enough? 
And you know, it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul is speaking to those two subjects when he talks about the, the, the game that he wants us to be in. He says, notice, for this reason, uh, I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded, one, that he's able. Earlier, he told us that that is the one who has grace for us, who loves us. The one who loves us, now, I'm sure that he is able to guard. He's able to watch over. He's able to bring me to safety. Uh, I have enough evidence. When our Lord was on the cross dying, he said to a thief that was also being crucified, when the thief said, uh, Teacher, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to the thief, Amen, I say to you, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. I think it's one of the most moving of the, of the seven last words. But you have a huge question you have to ask of that seven of that word. Is that just the, the word of a dying man trying to comfort another man? Or can Jesus Christ fulfill that promise? That's the big question. Can he make that happen? What do you do with that? Jesus Christ has the power to make it happen. That's the way Paul starts his whole letter. He has the power. He is the one that has the power. He has the strength to make it happen. He can fulfill that promise. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. That ends it. That's the story. It's now, I'm convinced. And that's what Paul ends this, this text for us today. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he's able to keep what I've committed to him against any day. He's able to watch over. I'm safe. That's sheer encouragement. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text, and thank you for St. Paul, for Timothy, uh, for the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, and it's a letter for us as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.